Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. Welcome back to The Art of Range. My guest today on the podcast is Addie Candib, the Pacific Northwest Director for American Farmland Trust. Addie was on the podcast before with Don Stewart, visiting about his book. I think that was episode 108. Uh, but I felt like there was a lot of unexplored territory left there since we were mostly focused on the book. And I can't remember whether I mentioned to you, Addie, that I had a few listeners who said that they wanted to hear more from you in the work of American Farmland Trust. Uh, the book is great, but we want to know more about Ag Land Trust and Addie. So uh, I'm thrilled to have her back by popular demand. Uh, Addie, welcome. Thank you for having me. As I mentioned before we started, I couldn't decide whether it was more helpful to have you do some self-introduction first or to talk about the purpose of land trust and then come back to your background. But uh, I've been told that it's sometimes hard for listeners to take in what a person is saying until they have some context for the person they're listening to. So uh, let's talk about your past and then we'll weave that into the work of land trust. Uh, how did you, this is a somewhat, um, I, I, I feel like a range and livestock related work is a little bit niche anyway, uh, but there's only so many people in the country who are the director for uh, regional land trust. That number is pretty small. How did you get to be doing that? Well, I will try to keep this brief, but I've been working sort of with one foot in the nonprofit space on one foot in the sustainable agriculture space. For over a decade now, I came into farming because I had been doing conservation work. I worked for the Conservation Corps and then the National Park Service. And during the recession in 2008, 2009, I had both started to get really interested in local food. Like many folks, I had read the books that folks were reading, Michael Pollan and Barbara King Falver, and I was getting really interested in local food. And then with the recession, I lost my job. And I said to my partner at the time, well, what better time than now to go try working on a farm? And we went and we apprenticed for a small scale diversified vegetable farm on Whidbey Island. And I, I never looked back. You know, in that context, I found both the the opportunity to be outdoors and work with my hands and feel connection to the landscape, but also connection to this incredible community of people who really cared about their work and cared about their food and their health and their bodies and, and the health of the community that, and the landscape that they're part of. So I really found my sort of intellectual home in the world of sustainable ag. And as we moved on from that apprenticeship and, and started farming on our own, ironically, I started working in nonprofits to support my farming habit. It's pretty hard to make a living on a, you know, we had a 15 member CSA at one point. So we weren't making a living or paying the bills, growing vegetables, but we were having a really good time. And 
I ended mm-hmm. up going back to school to get my master's in public administration. And I was working for the time, this is around 2014, 2015. I was working for a very small agricultural land trust down in the Olympia, Washington area, which was focused on not just protecting farmland, but also keeping it affordable in the long term for farmers. So that really their vision is that farmers should be able to afford to own their, sorry, be able to afford to farm and not have to work off farm jobs in order to, to do what they love. So really it was, it was there that I discovered a passion for farmland protection. And I knew that it's work that I wanted to stay involved in and come back to even as I moved on from that organization. And when the opportunity came around about four years ago to join American Farmland Trust, it really felt like the perfect opportunity. It, it was my dream job and still is to get to work on some of these issues that I think are of some of the most most important and most pressing in terms of conservation, but also in terms of farm viability and really helping the next generation of farmers to to be able to do what they love and to be able to succeed. No, that's interesting. I also think there's a maybe an unusual connection there. Maybe I'm just uh, not seeing it, uh, but I tend to associate conservation easements more with big agriculture, partly because oftentimes the money that pays for easements is looking for places where there's habitat. And that may just be because I am uh, have a little bit more experience with uh, conservation trusts that are focused on habitat rather than preserving farmland. Um, but, you know, interestingly, there there's, there's some cultural antagonism between big ag and small sustainable agriculture in that uh, you know the, the the big farms tend to think that uh, all that sustainable organic um, foofy stuff is uh, a bunch of hogwash and they're not serious farmers and then the small scale folks tend to think that again this is a caricature that the large ones are uh, just raping the land and mm-hmm. and uh, at least in the world of ranching, which again I'm more familiar with, it tends to be larger operations that are entertaining conservation easements because they're often in a position, a landscape position, where their land has significant habitat value in terms of uh, continuity or uh, keeping a contiguous block. Uh, yeah, what's the? I'm just curious, if you have any response? Uh, to that, I, I feel like I don't very often see conservation easements associated with smaller scale agriculture, uh, and I'm wondering if that's just my own ignorance. It's a great question, and just to back up a minute and respond to what you said a minute ago around being more familiar with conservation easements being used to protect wildlife habitat or ecological value. That is certainly the origin of how conservation easements were used. And for your listeners who may be less familiar with a conservation easement and what it is, I'll just say briefly that in very basic terms, a conservation easement is a restriction on the deed to the, to a piece of property. It is a flexible document. These are, they are not 
across the board, they are not the same. So a conservation easement is going to vary property by property, depending on lots of different things. But in its most basic sense, the conservation easement limits non-farm development on the farm or the ranch. It prevents subdivision and it prevents other uses that might be incompatible with agriculture. The goal of an easement is to protect the agricultural value and other natural resources on a farm or a ranch. And it runs with the land, which means that the easement applies to not just the current owner, but any future owners of the property. That's the sort of basic, basic explanation of what an easement is. Another way to explain it, a metaphor that folks often use or you might hear is to think about the, about property rights as a bundle of sticks. And each one of those sticks is a different right that travels with the property. So water rights might be one stick in that bundle and mineral right. rights is another stick in that bundle. And the right to develop that property is another stick in that bundle. And what happens when you sell a conservation easement is you take some of the sticks out of that bundle and you sell it to a land trust or sometimes a public conservation easement purchase program. We have a, a number of those here in Washington. And you can donate those rights or those sticks, but you can also sell them and be compensated in, um, in terms in, in cash for the value of the right to develop, just like you can sell mineral rights or you can sell water rights. In some cases, you can also sell the right to develop your land. So that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about an easement. So that said, yeah. historically, you're absolutely right that conservation easements were used to prevent development on property that had important habitat or other ecological value. And in the late 70s, early 80s, typical land trusts were not using conservation easements to protect farmland. Mm -hmm. And that is why American Farmland Trust was formed at the time. And Don Stewart does a much better job of telling the history. But in a nutshell, Peggy Rockefeller got really worked up about the loss of farmland in her community and tr set about trying to create what she at the time called the Nature Conservancy for Agriculture. She wanted to build or create a land trust that would use the tools of a land trust to protect ag land. So when American Farmland Trust was formed, we were the only land trust that was using the tools of the trade to apply to farmland. And of course, now we're one of hundreds, if not thousands of land trusts around the country who are, who are doing this really important work. Yeah, I, I think that's a... Uh, I, I sort of had the impression, but wouldn't have previously put words to it, that, that agricultural land trusts are sort of a, a second wave conservation effort. And I feel like part of where that comes from is that there has been the impression, probably uh, more from outside of agriculture, that farming is a lucrative business and therefore farmers don't need help to be, um, to preserve farmland. You know, and, and that, that term preservation is a term that we usually reserve for things like nature reserves. Uh, and that as long as it was economically viable, 
you know, there is a, a, a self-interest, there's some economic force behind keeping farms in farmland. But of course, when you start to get when you get into the history of farming and individual farming families, you, what you usually find is that there's very often a lot of voices who are uh, people who are official advisors, say to a, a farming family business, saying you can't make it, you should sell it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, we heard that oh a couple of years ago uh, with the Seabin Livestock Company out of uh, near Helena, Montana. You know, it was a situation where uh, the the guy that was running the place died in a plane crash, and uh, lawyers, financial advisors, everybody told the brothers, "Don't keep it. Your best bet is to cut the losses by selling it." And they made the decision to keep it. Uh, they also are um, in a conservation easement at this point. But but back to my point, I think there was this. There has been the impression that farming could survive on its own, and we didn't need help. I think there's also uh, a bit of, you know, some some lingering feeling that uh, was common in America at least a hundred years ago that it's a large continent, and our natural resources, including farmland, are inexhaustible, mm-hmm. and that we could afford to not be that careful with them and i we're we're past that point now but but of course these things get institutionalized and so there's still um a fair bit of reticence there uh i think to entertain some of these legal mechanisms that are meant to literally preserve farmland like it's a thing that needs to be protected instead of you know having a self-existence because it's economically viable yeah I think you're absolutely right. And and in addition to the themes or, or pressures that you mentioned, the other one I would add is that historically, there's been a lot of antagonism between agricultural communities and environmental advocates. And I think in the 80s, when AFT was formed, there was a pretty pervasive attitude in environmental organizations that farming was bad for the environment. Mm -hmm. And I think we now have several decades of really strong and successful collaboration between environmental organizations and farming communities. I think we know that farmers can be some of the best stewards of the environment and that they know the land intimately And I think we see that in particular in ranching communities where ranchers are are stewarding these vast swaths of land that can be incredibly rich and diverse. So I think AFT and our partners in the, the farmland and ranchland protection space have done a lot to build that bridge and make it less of sort of a cognitive leap to think that we might need and want to protect our farmland, that it is an important resource and that you can grow food on a piece of property while maintaining its inherent ecological value. I wanted to go back, um, you know, you had asked a question a minute ago about seeing conservation easements on smaller pieces pieces of land. Yeah. And I wanted to come back to that question if that's okay. 
Yeah, go ahead. So I sit on the the review committee for um, Washington State through our Recreation and Conservation Office has a program called the Washington Wildlife and Recreation Program. And this is a, a funding program that supports a number of different things. One of the things that it supports is conservation easements on agricultural land. And I sit on the review committee for that, that pot of funding. This year, I believe that fund was allocated about $11 million to distribute to land trusts and public easement programs around the state. And one of the things that is really exciting about being on that committee and also incredibly challenging is that we do see applications from all over the state. And we might see an application for an easement on a 15-acre diversified vegetable farm on the Olympic Peninsula. And then the next application that we read is for a 2,000-acre ranch in the Okanagan. Mm. And trying to discern and prioritize where to allocate public funding and which type of farming is 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 more important it's 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 an impossible task really because they're all important projects so i you know i think i i wanted to give voice to the fact that i think we do now see conservation easements being applied across a diverse spectrum of agriculture and parcel size there is a reason why we we see fewer easements on very small parcels, you know, like two and five and 10 acres, only because it's very time consuming for a land trust to go through the process of applying for funding to purchase the easement. And it can Mm. sometimes be anywhere from a, a two year to an eight year process, depending on the funding source and working with the farmer, the rancher and their family. So it's a massive investment of time and resources on part of the land trust. And because of that, I think there's a tendency for land trusts to invest in protecting parcels that may be larger or may have more impact on the landscape. So unusual to see very small parcels protected. But I think here on the west side of the Cascades, it's not unusual to see easements on parcels that are 20, 30, 40, 50 acres. Over on the east side, we're more likely to see conservation easements in the hundreds or thousands of acres. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's good to hear. And it, it sounds like that reflects this, this shift from only attempting to conserve and pay for conservation on lands that are that are that have uh, that are large landscapes that have significant habitat value mm-hmm. to those that that represent uh, imperiled arable ground and yeah. that's a, a whole different kind of thing yeah yeah I, I wanted to respond too to your your uh, comment earlier about uh, sort of I would I guess I would say a more old school environmentalism that says that farming is bad for the environment. Mm-hmm. I've begun repeating Barry Perryman's adage that grazing is a verb, not a noun. And that if we don't like the results of grazing, the result to that or the response to that is is not to stop grazing, but to graze differently. And it it sounded like you were saying uh, 
sort of in like manner, the solution to environmental problems associated with farming isn't to stop farming. It's to farm differently so that we don't have uh, the environmental problems. And that can be a long path. Uh, You know, and the barriers to that can be a variety of things. It could be personality. It could sometimes be money where people feel like they're locked into a certain style of farming that they feel like guarantees at least enough income to you know, pay back the operating loan. Uh, but that gets at what I think is oftentimes the, the biggest issue with land trust, and that's succession. Uh, you know, it, it's often said that God is not making more land. Mm-hmm. Dirt recirculates, but, but the amount of farmable land area in the world is not increasing. At least in rangelands, the conversion of rangeland to other uses is often uh, you know, from an extensive land use like grazing to a more intensive form of agriculture uh, like cropland, uh, but but maybe nearly equally often to something like a ranchette, you know, a small acreage rural property uh, that's too small to farm but big enough to be a real ecological problem when it's managed poorly mm-hmm. and people can fill in the blank with whatever that number of acres is in, in their own location. Uh, you know, and a lot of Every culture has had to deal with this, and and of course, most of them before modern America uh, saw this problem, this intergenerational transfer problem, and had mechanisms to deal with it. You know, a lot of times, the entire property would be handed down to a firstborn child or a firstborn son, because you can you can only split in half, and then split in half, and then split in thirds, and then split in quarters so many times before you don't have any. Uh, farmland left, at least not of any viable size. And it, it's, it's intuitively obvious that farmland is no longer economically viable if it's split up between the heirs at every generational transition. And that, that transition is often what precipitates a conversation about, about land trusts. And it's, uh, I, think, I think you've already alluded to it, it's, it's both things. It's, you know, do we attempt to keep uh, this piece of farm ground intact? And it's also uh, how are we going to afford to keep this intact? Because it's an expensive habit in many cases. Uh, that's probably a, that might be a conversation that'd be worth talking about um, another time as well in terms of the, the general profitability of agriculture. But I think you've already, you've, you've already gotten to this. The, the impulse to uh, direct housing development and to limit loss of farmland uh, still seems to me to be a, a pretty useful objective of conservation easements and the work of land trusts. Uh, but I definitely have not spent much time in that world. Um, you've alluded to it, but but what would you say is the the purpose of American Farmland Trust specifically? Because there's, as you've mentioned, mm-hmm. there's a variety of kinds of land trusts out there. Right, and American Farmland Trust is a little different than many other land trusts in that we are a land trust, but, but we are also many other things. So the, the land trust work is a, a small slice of the programming that we do. Hmm. We started out as a land trust, and that was sort of our core focus in those early years. But I think our founders quickly realized that they could have more impact by getting engaged in federal policy. So our early staff and board members were very heavily involved in 
developing the conservation title in the farm bill, developing the federal programs that now fund conservation easements. And because of that trajectory going from just being a land trust to being an important player in federal policy decision making, we have also grown in a lot of other ways. We continue to be involved in federal farm bill advocacy and our mission has expanded. So our, our mission is to save the land that sustains us by protecting farmland promoting sound farming practices, and keeping farmers on the land. And that's a big tent. So we talked about the protecting farmland piece, the promoting sound farming practices. These days, we're talking a lot about climate smart agriculture. And we are trying to support farmers in adopting soil health practices and adopting other practices that can help to sequester carbon and reduce carbon emissions. And then the third piece is that keeping farmers on the land. In some ways, that's the, the biggest and most complicated bucket because what, what fits in there includes land access. It includes the succession and transfer issues that you're talking about. But it also includes farm viability, the, the business aspect of it. How do we keep farms economically viable? So we're doing a lot. And what we do or how we do it tends to vary in region by region. We have eight regional programs. And I, of course, represent our Pacific Northwest program. So, um, you know, I would say for most, most land trusts are working, you know, there are some, some exceptions. There are some other large national land trusts like the Nature Conservancy. Um, but most land trusts are working on more of a focused local or regional scale. And we're very fortunate here in Washington to have an incredible tapestry of local and regional land trusts. And most of them, I would say the majority of their work is focused on land protection and stewardship. And they might have a little bit of other programming on the side. Mm-hmm. One of the questions that I wasn't sure when we would get to or if we would get to it, uh, but but this kind of queued it up. Uh, I am personally curious, how does American Farmland Trust, you know, relate to or work around or work with these other local land trusts? And to what extent, I really have no idea, to what extent is there competition, um, you know, f- say for a, a property and and maybe an, a, an FAQ from landowners, uh, should I shop around for a land trust? Yeah, great question. Our policy is that we we intentionally don't want to be perceived as competing with local land trusts. And so by and large, we don't do land protection work in communities where there is an active land trust, unless we have been explicitly invited by the local land trust to get involved or to partner on a project. We hold here in the Pacific Northwest... We hold about 3,000 acres under easement. Most of those are very early easements that were granted to AFT in the, in the 80s and 90s. And they all happen to be in Oregon. So we hmm. really aren't doing active land protection work here in, in Washington and, and Oregon um, or Idaho. 
impart, you know, and, and it's not to say that there aren't gaps because I know that there are communities in their region that feel like they are not being served by a land trust. So it's not to say that every community is fully being served, but it's not so much that there's competition for projects, but there is competition for funding. I mentioned that, that, um, Washington Wildlife and Recreation Program funding, you know, that is a competitive pool that land trusts have to apply to every two years. And we prefer not to be in competition with mm. the local land trusts. Um, in, you know, in, I said we mentioned, we manage about 70,000 acres around the country. And historically, that was more. But over time, we have actually passed off a number of easements to more local land trusts who are in a better position to do the ongoing stewardship work. So I would say that we, um, we try to partner as closely as we can. We work very closely with the Washington Association of Land Trusts. And um, as far as our advocacy work goes, we, we partner to try to advocate for more funding for farmland protection and other programs that are going to support land trusts. Um, we try to be a resource for land trusts who are trying to get more involved in farmland protection work where they haven't been before. So we we do partner we work very closely we try to be um a supporter and a champion wherever possible and at least here in the northwest we try um try not to compete yeah that fits my very uh informal uneducated from the outside looking in <clears throat> impression of of what american farmland trust has done uh, ie being an advocate for the work of land trust uh, in general um what what should somebody be say i'm a a farmer in ellensburg and um and and i've got a i i have an offer for a solar installation on my on a quarter section of you know prime farm ground and i'm interested in seeing what other options are there out there uh where how would you recommend going about you know one looking for a land trust that might be able to offer a conservation easement, uh, and and two, how would you? What, what are what are some features of either the the you know, the relationship with the land trust or the terms of a conservation easement that I should be thinking about in comparing one to another, assuming that there's more than one option where I live? Sure, great questions. And since you brought up solar, <laughs> I did. Just happened to mention that light topic of solar energy on farmland. I'll say briefly, this is a, it's an issue that is of real interest to us. And we are by no stretch are we opposed to solar development. We absolutely think that solar is key to decarbonizing. That said, we are concerned about the conversion of farmland to solar and the impacts that that will have on farming communities. One of the things that we have done in the last couple of years is we published a guidebook that we called Solar Leasing for Agricultural Landowners in the Pacific Northwest. So, if this landowner in Allensburg has been approached by a solar developer and offered a lease, 
the first thing I would do is say, check out our guidebook and walk through it step by step. What that guidebook does is it really tries to be a decision-making tool to help landowners understand not just the opportunities, like the, the financial opportunities that come with a solar lease, but also the challenges and the opportunity costs that come along with a solar lease. It's the, the guide is really intending to be an, be a neutral resource. We're not trying to tell anyone which direction they should or shouldn't go. What we want is for them to have all of the information. And if they are going to go ahead with a solar lease, that they do that eyes wide open. So I will, um, I will send you a link to the guidebook so that you can share that with your listeners as well. But that would be the first thing I would say is read the guidebook. That'd be wonderful. Yeah. As far as looking into a conservation easement, another resource I'll share is that AFT hosts something that we call the Farmland Information Center or the FIC. And you can find it online at farmlandinfo.org. And it's a really a clearinghouse of resources about farmland protection. And you can do a couple of things on there as a landowner. You can read a lot about what conservation easements are, how they work, whether you might want to consider mm-hmm. one or not. But then you can also look for land trusts that are active in your geography. So it's a Excellent. great place to get started with information and to sort of get connected with a land trust. Um, the other thing that I would say as far as, you know, this is, it is a long-term relationship. And I, I mentioned this earlier that the conservation easement travels with the land and it's an ongoing relationship with the land trust as well, because as holders of that easement, they are going to do probably an annual stewardship visit out to see the property and make sure that the terms of the agreement are being adhered to. So I think that, you know, that relationship piece needs to be a fit. It needs to feel comfortable. The landowner needs to feel like they can trust the land trust staff, that they, they communicate well, that they communicate clearly, they communicate in a timely way. So I think it's mm-hmm. the same things that you would be looking for in any kind of long-term partnership. If you were hiring a, a builder to build you a house, you would want them to be a good communicator and show up on time when they said they were going to show up and um, all those sorts of things. So well, this is a bigger deal because you have an annual, yeah. at least an annual interaction with that builder for the life of the house. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So it is, you know, in some ways it's, it's like a builder, but it's also like a life partner. Right. <laughs> um, and, you, you know, I think other things to consider there, you know, there's, there are a couple of, of myths out there around what conservation easements are or are not. And one of the myths that commonly circulate is that once a landowner places an easement on the property, that they will no longer control what can or cannot happen on that property, or that they will be told how they can or cannot farm or ranch. 
And that's not the case. These conservation easements are really should be crafted in order to meet the needs of the landowner or the farmer or the rancher. And that landowner needs to be thinking ahead and, you know, trying to design the easement to be as flexible as possible to accommodate for what the future might look like. And a great example of that Hmm. is thinking about future housing on the property. So let's say you have a property that has five remaining development rights on it. That means that you could still, um, as per local zoning, you could still build five more houses on it. Now, you could use a conservation easement to extinguish all of those development rights. So no more houses could be built there. But a landowner might say, you know... I really want to preserve the ability. I, you know, I, my one child really wants to come back and farm here and I want to preserve the ability for them to build a house. So we're going to set aside a section of the land over on this side of the property where they might, and we're going to preserve one development right so that they can build a house someday and then we'll extinguish the rest of the development rights. So there's really an ability to think through. And I think that it's an opportunity in sort of the succession conversation to be working with the family members to say, what do we want this to look like? What do we, how do we want to set ourselves up for success? What do we want to eliminate? What do we want to protect? And ideally the conservation easement can really honor that long-term vision and help to support that long-term vision to be actualized. I have a question related to that. Uh, To what extent are the terms of the easement related to the source of the money? And, and here again, I'm betraying my ignorance about, about where a land trust comes up with money. But I am aware that uh, you know, there can be a variety of sources for uh, who's providing the money that flows through the land trust that, that pays the farmer to extinguish that portion of their, of their property rights. Uh, yeah, so I'll repeat that just in case it was missed. To what extent are the easement terms related to where the money's coming from behind the easement? That's a, a really smart question. There is definitely a connection there. Whether and and I would say the main sources of funding for a conservation easement, a landowner can donate the easement, in which case they're not being paid for it at all. And that's going to be sort of the most flexible because there's no restrictions. Mm. Other sources of funding can be federal um, through the Natural Resources Conservation Service, the um, Agricultural Conservation Easement Program, or ASAP. Here in Washington, we have the we have a couple of programs at the state level that fund easements, and then some counties also fund conservation easements through something called conservation futures. And I can talk more about that if you're interested. I think generally, the these PACE pro, um, public programs have tried to align their easements so that they are more or less similar. Because often, land trusts are trying to match funding sources together. The NRCS program I mentioned, they only pay 50% of the cost. The WWRP state program I mentioned only pays 50% of the cost. So the land trust is typically trying to pair two programs together. So there's not 
Hmm. wide variation in the terms of that these easements require. But the, the easements do have limitations. So for instance, and I'll bring it back to solar, because I think this is this is relevant. Most public easement programs that I'm aware of essentially say, if um, you cannot use this funding to put an easement on land that is being used for utility scale energy generation. Hmm. So your landowner in Ellensburg who is considering leasing a quarter of their acreage for a solar development, they need to understand that that land cannot be put into a conservation easement using public dollars while that solar installation is in place. Got it. Um, and, and similarly, that easement would also say, you know, once we put this easement in place, you can't build a utility scale solar installation. You, if you want right. to put some solar on your barn to help offset your energy costs, that's one thing, but it, you are not going to let you lease this for, for large scale wind or, or um, solar. Yeah. Well, I think the other, the other big selling point, at least for farmers and ranchers, uh, to entertain a conservation easement is is money. Uh, you said earlier that non-farm income is often important for the viability of small farms. Uh, you know, but agricultural economists would say that even on giant farms, they're often marginally economically viable. Even though I would say what they're doing is is pretty important. You know, as the American Farmland Trust bumper sticker says, if we don't have any farms, we don't have any food. At least none that we're not importing. Uh, so this is still a pretty big deal. Uh, so uh, in my in my work with with ranchers and uh, uh, less so with farmers, I would say that you know a, a little bit of off farm income can make a pretty big difference in uh, in whether or not people feel like the farm is viable, and that translates into morale and interpersonal relationships and how people treat each other. Uh, you know, not to mention whether or not the uh, the the places making money or at least not losing money. Uh, and this is still a little bit of a, a black box to me. Again, I'm showing my ignorance, but but how does the money work in a conservation easement? And, and maybe this is something where you know there's not a whole lot of difference between land trusts in that uh, if the basis for a payment is an appraisal, uh, there's standards that govern mm-hmm. how to conduct appraisals and Theoretically, three appraisers would come up with pretty similar numbers, but I'm jumping ahead of the question. Uh, Yeah, how does the money work in a conservation easement? Because this can be, this might be, you know, the sticking point or the thing that makes it or breaks it. Right, and I think you're absolutely, absolutely correct here that the money is key, and it's a key reason why landowners might engage in the conservation easement in the first place. And it's an important way, but you know, back to the, to the succession question, it's a key way that easements can help to support a transition to the next generation by infusing the operation with a big chunk of cash. And that cash can either be invested back into the property in the form of infrastructure, or it could be used by the elder generation to retire comfortably so that they don't need to sell the land. And I think this is you know, one of the things that we see over and over again is that 
farm farmland owners have not set aside funds for retirement, that their retirement plan is all mm-hmm. tied up in their land. And so when we think about how we help them retire comfortably and securely, we have to think through, well, how is there a way to do that that doesn't involve essentially liquidating a farm? And that's where the conservation easement can help to play a role. Now, the way that the money works is you're absolutely right. To value the conservation easement, an appraisal has to be done. And that's a requirement of most of the public funding programs. Uh, All of the public funding programs require an easement, I believe. Or I'm sorry, an appraisal. And that appraisal is, you know, typically depending on lots of different factors, um, the location, the size of the property, the number of development rights on that property, development pressure in that area. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the easement value is going to typically come in, you know, around like 40 to 60% of the market value of the property. Sometimes it's going to be more, sometimes it's going to be less, depending on the um, certain conditions of the easement, like the, if the easement is more mm-hmm. or less restrictive. It can the value can be higher. So let's say that you have, for simple math, you have a property that's valued at a million dollars, and the value of the easement is valued at five hundred thousand. The land trust would apply to a very you know various programs to access that five hundred thousand dollars in grant funding. And that $500,000 would be paid to the landowner at the same time that the easement gets signed. And then the landowner would have that $500,000 in cash. That's a very simplified way to describe it, but that's more or less what happens. And forgive me if I just missed it, but what is the duration of that easement? I feel like at one point there was some conversation uh, and I may be thinking of stuff that I heard 20 years ago that 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 number is different if it's a 30-year easement versus something that's uh, in perpetuity? Most easements okay. are perpetual. So they are designed to last forever. Now, there, I think perpetual is scary. Talking about forever is scary. And it's yeah. a reason why some landowners might say, I'm not, you know, I can't tie up this land forever. So... There are some conversations happening and there are some conservation organizations that are playing around with what they call term Mm. easements, where a landowner is being compensated for protecting their land for, you know, 15 years or 30 years. Yeah, interesting. I would say it's controversial in the conservation community. I think there are some folks who see it as a really valid tool to, you know, kind of put a temporary hold in places where development pressure is very intense. Our work in the Boise metro area in Idaho, people have started to bring up the question of term easements a lot because it feels like Boise is just under tremendous pressure right now. And they say, you know, if we can just put a temporary hold and slow things down for a little bit, Maybe we can get through this mm. this moment that we're in. 
So, you know, some people look at it as a really valuable tool. I think there are others in the conservation space who see a lot of issues with term easements and find them problematic. So it's not something that I have a ton of experience with. I don't think it's been being done super widely, but it's out there as a conversation. Uh, You mentioned you had several myths to address. Uh, I don't, I've got another question that might be one of the myths, but I'm not sure. You know, one question that I think people often ask is, do I have to have a, a photogenic property to be considered for an easement, you know, on the front range of the Rockies or on the east slope of the Cascades or, uh, you know, in some place that is um, a, a pretty spot with a large acreage. And I, I know you've said that that's not exactly uh, the review criteria for a farmland trust. Uh, and you mentioned some of the things that a review panel would be looking at. What are what are some of the things that, um, maybe just to re- restate some of the primary things that would be some primary factors in, you know, one, whether a person should be looking for an easement and two, you know, what would, um, or maybe, maybe the reverse, you know, what, sorry, I'm fumbling here. What factors would lead a per, would would lead a review panel to say this is not likely something that we would fund? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a little hard to answer because right, it's, it's so going to depend. It's going to depend specific. on context specific. It's going to depend on the funder. Different kinds of funders want different kinds of things. Sure. I think the bigger or the question that's sort of more relevant for a landowner is. What are the things that are going to make a land trust want to take mm-hmm. the project on? And you asked me a while back about whether landowners should shop around mm-hmm. to different land trusts. And I think it's a, it's an important question. And I, I do get calls from landowners who maybe they've reached because typically if someone reaches out to me first, about engaging in a conservation easement, I'm going to give them some high level information and then I'm going to refer them to their local land trust. That's typically how we work. But I do occasionally get calls from landowners who have already engaged their local land trust and they don't like the answer that they've gotten. Mm. And so they're coming to me. And my answer is usually, well, if your local land trust isn't going to take it on, we're probably not going to take mm-hmm. it on for all of the same reasons. And the, you know, the reasons why a land trust might not take a project on, you know, number one, it might be capacity. They might already have too many projects in their pipeline. And these are usually small organizations with one or two staff doing conservation easement work. And the farmland protection is probably just a piece of their portfolio. So maybe they're doing a couple of farmland projects per year. So they might say, yes, we're interested, but we can't get to this for a year or two. They might say no because the property is too small. They might say no because it doesn't have any development rights remaining on it. So the easement's not likely to be valued uh, a lot. Um, other reasons, um, let's see. I think some land trusts are more interested in doing farmland projects where there is also significant, say, habitat benefit, like a farm that has a big riparian area traveling through it and is home to salmonid species or, you know, other key indicator species. So 
you know, um, someone who just has a, a big piece of flat farm ground without uh, a lot of kind of ecological interest, some land trusts might say, mm, that's sort of outside of our wheelhouse. Um, there are probably other reasons that aren't coming to mind right now. But to your question about does it need to be like a, mm-hmm. a picture perfect, beautiful, photogenic farm or ranch in order to be eligible? Yes. Absolutely not. That, you know, from my perspective, we're doing this work because we want to protect farmland that is productive so that we can continue to grow food. And that farmland needs to look like farmland and some farmland is incredibly topographically diverse and complex and, and sort of dynamic. And some of it is not, and it's all productive and it's all important. Yeah. No, that, that, that all adds up. Uh, I do want to come back to the, whether or not we've gotten through all of your myths yet, but I, that made me think of one other question. You know, these are, these are big questions for a family business, assuming that there's more than one person involved in the decision. And because that conversation, you know, it has to do with both death and taxes, it's not a fun conversation for families to engage in. Uh, I've, I've worked mm-hmm. with uh, a colleague here in Washington state doing some succession planning workshops uh, using the ties to the land curriculum. And most people say <clears throat> that mm-hmm. the, the, the most useful aspect of that was forcing people to sit down and talk about it. And in fact, I've had several farmers say that, you know, the estate attorney that they paid 300 bucks an hour, uh, really to just, uh, most of what they were paying for was somebody who was facilitating an unpleasant family conversation and that that money was well worth it. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, to what extent do, do people usually come to a land trust after they've had that conversation or does somebody usually say, yeah, here's a possibility we should consider this. And then that forces the conversation. And do you have any advice or you know motivation for families that don't want to talk about this? I grew up in the South and it, it definitely is part of the culture there where you don't talk about it. And when grandpa dies, then we'll, then we'll all find out what was in his will. That tends to be not an uncommon situation. It's so hard. It's, and I, I have not personally been through a family farm succession planning conversation, but I have been through planning conversations with my own parents about the end of their lives and their, their assets. And I have a young son and it took my partner and I four years to finally sit down and put in place a plan for what would happen to mm-hmm. our son if something were to happen to us. Mm-hmm. It took us four years to do that in part because there's some difficult conversations you have to make that, that just like you say, they bring up conversations about your mortality. It's awful as a parent to think about well, what's going to happen to my kid if I were to die and yeah. I weren't there around to take care of them. But I think what motivated us to finally get over that hump was thinking, how awful is it going to be if something happens to us and there is no plan? Who's mm-hmm. going to take care of him then? And I think it's, and, and to me, that lesson applies in, in the succession planning scenario. Folks have invested in some cases, generations, lifetimes into a piece of land and the business 
of working and stewarding that land. And if they don't plan for what happens, there's a, a solid chance that, that right. something's going to happen to you if you don't there, make some decisions about what that's going to be. And, and, and there's no question that yeah. we're all going to die. We're, we're all going to die. That is, that is the yeah, one the death certainty still 100%. that we live with. So, <laughs> exactly. So, why not be intentional? Having poured all of your life and all of your energy and your love into your land, don't you think, you know, and, and there's so much pain and discomfort involved in farming and ranching. It, 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 I don't have to tell you, it's not an easy business. So don't you think it's worth just a little bit more pain and discomfort to have the conversation that's going to get you to a clear plan about who's going to steward the land mm-hmm. after you can't do it anymore? It's It feels like a really small price to pay to get to some clarity and certainty and the knowledge that you're going to have a legacy. Mm-hmm. That and we always on. think that there will be tomorrow to worry about it. Right. Exactly. Until there's not. Well, do you have more myths? The first one was one that I believe. So you're onto something and we should <laughs> maybe address the rest of them. Yeah. Let's see. I think one of the myths that's out there is that once a conservation easement is placed on a piece of land, that that land is removed from county tax rolls. So it diminishes the income in that county. And the fact is that once a property has an easement on it, it remains in private ownership. It is, mm-hmm. it is not a, a public piece of land. It remains in ownership by the private individual or family. And so that owner continues to pay property taxes right. to the county. So that's, that's sort of the second myth. We, I touched on this with the first one around this idea that if you have an easement, you lose control over mm-hmm. the piece of property. And I think in a sort of addendum to that one is some folks think that if they do an easement, that they have to let the public onto their land. Mm. Or that the easement's going to require public year-round public access or something. Like a public and easement where people think exactly. there's a road or a power line or something that, that does allow <clears throat> at least utility access. Right. Um, and that's, that's not the case. Certainly, easements are crafted that allow for public access. Or there might be a provision in the easement that says that the landowner might allow public access on one day per year. Um, you know, there, I can think of down in the South Sound, um, in Washington where there, we have that native prairie and there are certain, um, prairie species that only live on those, um, working lands. You know, the, the land trust might say, we want to craft an easement where we have the right to come onto the property during the time of year when there are these Mm -hmm. butterflies. Um, and, you know, we'll do that in partnership with the landowner. But again, that's where the easements are really flexible document and you can craft an easement that has no provision for public access. So it's not a requirement. And let's see, I think I'm just looking at my list here. I think the, the last one I would say is that um, some folks think that once land has an easement on it, that it can't be 
sold or passed on to other mm. members of the family. And that's not the case. It remains in, in private ownership. It has some restrictions on it, yes, but that land can be sold with those restrictions on it, either to someone outside of the family or it can be you know, passed on or inherited um, to um, other members of the family. So the, the conservation easement is not a barrier to that property being transitioned just as any other piece of property would be. Yeah, that's related to something that I have heard is a concern from landowners. Uh, and I, you know, the concern could work both directions. The The question is, how does an easement affect uh, the, the resale value, which is something different than the property value, even though they're related? Uh, and I've heard that in many cases, a conservation easement can make particularly a ranch property more attractive, depending on who the buyer is. Because there's some, uh, there's some, there's a trajectory there that is valuing conservation. Um, I don't know that I've got any more to, to say about that, except that that is a, a stated concern from some people about uh, people who know, who already know that that is a myth that they can't sell the land, but that they're concerned about mm -hmm. when they do want to sell the land. Uh, now it will be worth less, and. You know, the obvious knee-jerk reaction mm -hmm. to that was, well, yeah, you already got paid for that part of it. But <clears throat> uh, what's your response to that? So you're absolutely right that within the sort of, I would say, first generation of the easement. So you put that easement on the property and the first time that it sells to a new buyer, whether that's a family member or someone else, it will typically reduce the resale value of the property. And often, you know, that's it's happening at the same time, what we call a mm -hmm. simultaneous sale, where the land is being sold and the easement is being sold at the same time. So let's go back to that, you know, $1 million property example. The landowner is getting $500,000 for the easement and they're getting $500,000 for the, the fee interest in the property and to you know between those two components they're made whole now an a subject of i would say much debate in the land trust community is how effective are easements in keeping farmland affordable mm. over the long term so after that first sale you know a second generation buyer on that on an eased property, are they actually purchasing a property that is more affordable? And I think currently the answer is it depends. You're absolutely right that in some cases, a property that has a conservation easement might be really appealing to a buyer who wants a big estate home and they don't want any neighbors around them and they just want to look out the windows and see wildlife. So they might be willing to pay top dollar for a property that can't be subdivided. And I think that's where on some level our, our traditional methods for valuing land are, they are, they are limited. Um, and we sort of operate in a system that, you know, for, for better or for worse, we try to distill down the value of a piece of property into these very concrete things 
But sometimes buyers are willing to pay a lot of money for something that on paper, quote unquote, isn't valuable. And that's where right. the, the math gets a little bit murky. So yeah, it's something that, um, that land trusts are talking about a lot. Yeah, because even in farmland, I mean, with ranch land, it's even a bigger deal. But I suppose in with large farmland properties as well, the the new buyer may not is very likely not looking at the property in terms of its you know future profit potential. Mm-hmm. It's it may be an an investment the um, mechanism or uh, you know a variety of things that have nothing to do with annual farming revenue. Right. Well, well, we're about at time, but what am what else am I uh, not asking that people should know about? I think it's a well. There's probably a lot, but I think that conservation easements are an important tool. I think that families should be sitting down and having these conversations and saying, "What do we want for the future of this land? How do we protect our legacy? What are the tools in the toolbox and conservation easements are one of them, but you can also have a successful farm transition without a conservation easement. It's not a prerequisite, right? So I think it's worth exploring and doing the due diligence. And I think folks should have patience because it is a long process. I think where people get discouraged is when you know, maybe they, they haven't wanted to do the planning and they haven't had the conversations. And then they're at a point where, let's say, mom or dad gets sick, passes away. All of a sudden, you know, everyone wants to put the land up for sale. And there's one person who says, no, let's keep it in the family. You know, in that point, it's mm-hmm. typically too late to, to you know, because the, the sort of process of working with a land trust can, can take so long. Um, it's not a great tool for land that is either already on the market or immediately at risk of going mm. on the market. We have other resources um, in Washington to address that situation that I'd be happy to talk about some other time. But I think the big thing I would stress here is if folks feel like a conservation easement might be appropriate for them to start that conversation early, way before they feel like they're ready. Because it, it can take such a long time to get it done in the way that people want to get it done. Right. No, that's a good word. And I, I really am thrilled that there's uh, a location or a, a website. You mentioned farmlandinfo.org uh, for information on farmland protection. And people can walk through some considerations to see if this might be a good fit for them, as well as the solar leasing guidebook that uh, we will link to both of those things in the the show notes for this episode. Um, yeah, I've, I've got a few notes on things that it might be worthwhile talking about later, but Great. we'll probably have to wait till later to talk about those. So uh, Andy Candib, thank you very much again for your time. And I think this will be a tremendously helpful episode for some people. Thank you so much. This has been just so much fun. I really appreciated the conversation and I look forward to doing it again sometime. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at 
artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement.